you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. We'll be finishing out our Colossians series this morning and talking about the pathway toward peace. We're talking a little bit right before service about how some of the ways that peace is not being done right now and everything that's going on in Ukraine and Russia. We'll be uh, talking a little bit about external peace. We're also going to be talking about how having a peace in our own hearts and relationships and families and, and everything like that. And peace is a popular subject nowadays. If you are like me and you work nights and you happen to be off that night and you're watching TV late at night, you have all kinds of commercials that come on trying to sell you something that is going to give you peace. It could be a pill, it could be some type of massage thing. I mean, there are whole industries out there that exist to promote this idea of peace. Psycho psychiatrists and psychologists are very rich helping people find different ways of coming to peace with who they are and, and the things that they are dealing with. The pharmaceutical injury is one of the most wealthy businesses in the entire world as they put out uh, medication after medication after medication for antidepressing uh, things, for anxiety pills and all that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm not doubting that. Some people really, really need that kind of, of treatment. But you see just how much that um, people who, who need that are, are seeking a kind of peace in their own life and, and getting away from the anxiety and, and depression in their own thoughts. Um, even a lot of music that's coming out right now, a lot of new age music is, is um, promoting itself as something that will give you peace if you just listen to it. In fact, there are even seminars out there that will teach you how to develop a more peaceful outlook and, and mindset in life. Peace is very important to us on a very deep level. No one wants anxiety. No one wants fear. No one wants doubt. No one wants these, these negative emotions in our lives. None of us want to live in a constant state of conflict or war, either externally in the world or internally in our own spirits. So today we're going to be exploring a pathway to peace on all sides. In the world that exists on the outside, how we walk in peace on the inside, and even in the church and in our families. So we're going to start first with the outside. I learned a little bit about this when I went through basic training for the first time. I had a senior drill instructor. His name was Sergeant First Class Monk. Sergeant Monk was about six foot five, 250 pounds of nothing but solid muscle. He would have difficulty rolling up his sleeves like they teach you in the Army, to get around his biceps because they were so huge, he'd have to order like special uniforms so he could uh, so he could wear it. And he was like one of the biggest guys I've ever seen. And the other thing that that distinguished him was that he was very very African American, very black. And after they did that whole shark attack thing, when we got off the bus, that's when the drill sergeants are surrounding you, screaming a whole bunch of different things, and, and one telling you to do this, and the other one telling you to do that, and one asking a question, and, and all this kind of stuff. He got everybody calmed down. He told everybody, get in formation, just line up. He goes, I want 10 people here, 10 people behind them, 10 people behind them, 10 people behind them, until you run out of people, and then we'll sort it out. And so everybody got like in lines, and he noticed a very interesting thing happened. 
pretty much the first two ro roles, or what were going to be squads eventually, were all white people. Third role was Hispanic, and the fourth role was all black. He saw that, and he immediately smoked us. If you don't know what smoking is in the military, that's when they PT you until you want to die. That's when they make you do jumping jacks, push-ups, sit-ups, leg raises, all kinds of physical exercise until you pretty much want to pass out, throw up, or die. Those are your three options. And after the third person finally threw up, he stood us up and, and taught us an important army value. And that was respect for yourself and respect for your fellow soldiers and cooperation. And he, said, and he did it by asking how many people here consider themselves to be Southerners? And, you know, about half of them raised their hand. He goes, okay, I want the white soldiers over here. I want the black southern ones over here. Got them together. He said, you, you, your battle buddies. You, you, your battle buddies. Team together a white person and a black person. He did the same thing. He goes, who come from a rural area? Who's left? Who came from a southern or came from a city area? You, you, come together. In other words, he was putting together people of, of completely different backgrounds and bringing them together. He goes, you are going to be battle buddies with this person. He goes, if I find you apart from your battle buddy, I will smoke you until you beg me for death. He said, I want you to understand that you are now in the army. You are not black. You are not white. You are not a northerner. You are not a southerner. You are green. Army, green, one color, one family, one army. And he did that to show us that you can have unity through diversity. But he wasn't the first person who came up with that idea. Jesus is actually the first person who came up with that idea when he made the church. Initially, in the early church... There was a lot of drama. After all, the Jewish people for centuries had considered themselves to be God's chosen. You, if you were Jewish, you were God's chosen. Everybody else was considered to be, by a Jew, pretty much a dog. They were somewhat kind of subhuman people that existed apart from the blessing of God. And that's how the Jewish people looked at Gentiles. You and me... We are Gentiles. Jewish people would have looked down on us unless you have Jewish blood in you. So it was a huge culture shock to the early church when Peter had his vision and Paul got knocked off his high horse right around that same time. And God chose Paul to go to the Gentiles and told Peter the Gentiles get to come in. They get to be equal with the Jewish people. So huge Culture shock to the early church. They didn't know what to do with that. And that's part of the reason that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the church of Colossae this part of, of the letter. He wanted them to experience God's peace in every part of their private and their church life. And we're going to go through this section of scripture a few verses at a time. We're going to see first how Jesus wants us to think about those inside and outside the church so that his church can be part of the pathway toward having the peace that we all desire. In Colossians 
chapter 1, starting in verse 11. It says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And Father God, as we look at your prescription and description of what the church is supposed to be, I ask, Father, that you judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, that you help us to look at people who are not like us. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe they're a different ethnicity. Maybe they're, they have a different mindset. Maybe they're liberal. Maybe they're conservative. Maybe they're just something that we are not familiar with and don't understand. Help us to see them as equally worthy of the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, as we do that, as we go through this scripture, help us to see how you are using these scriptures to develop this sense of peace within our hearts, within our minds, and within our spirits. So that we don't have to buy in to the conflict the world wants to sell us. Father God, I ask this that you do this through the study of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Paul is a Hebrew rabbi. And rabbis, especially the Jewish ones, have a very specific way of teaching truth. First they state the truth. And then they expound on all the ways that the truth is lived out. And if you look at the way that Jesus taught, he did exactly the same thing. But Jesus would also put on the added thing of actually doing something to you or for you and then teach you what he did. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to lay out the truth, we're going to break it down, and then put it back together as a fully formed ethic to live by. So here's the truth. In the verses that we just read, it says that if you are in Christ, all those things you are born with mean nothing. It means nothing. And this flies in the face of everything that today's culture wants to teach us. And the kingdom of God, that's what the church is supposed to represent. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You don't take to, get to take pride in anything else. There is no Irish pride. There is no Norwegian pride. Now I know secretly we think we're God's chosen. We think we're better. We think we're the, the creme de la creme of, of all human creation, but we still can't take pride in it because we really had nothing to do with our ancestry, did we? So that means there's also no black pride. There's also no white pride. There's definitely no gay pride. I know we're in that month, but it doesn't exist in heaven, so it probably shouldn't exist here on earth. And when we talk about this kind of pride, it causes many people to bristle under that, that, that we can't have pride in something that we also attach to our Christianity. And that's a very hard pill for us to swallow, but it was also a very hard pill for the church in the early days to swallow. After all, we mentioned the Jewish people 
had been the chosen of God in their minds and, and reality for thousands of years. And they took a lot of pride in that. For a Jewish person who grew up all their lives looking at non-Jews as barely human, it's a huge hurdle for them to jump over. And then you had the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people, which is you and I, by the way. The Jew, Gentiles were defined by their diversity. They had all kinds of different ancestries to deal with, all kinds of different traditions and beliefs and ways of doing things that were offensive to each other, and not to even mention how offensive they were to the Jewish people. All those people came in to the early church, they were all thrown together with a leadership who themselves were freshly saved and didn't know what they were doing either. So you see why Paul was constantly stamping out little fires in all the churches and dealing with error. When you read through the New Testament, it's all he seemed to be doing is stamping out these little theological and, and interpersonal fires within the church. There was a lot of drama there. And this is why... God, the Holy Spirit, had Paul write the truth that we just read. And that truth, uh, modernized, is simply this. There is no hyphenation in the kingdom of God. You are not a white Christian. You are not a black Christian. You are not a Hispanic Christian. You are Christian. Period. Because Christianity is all about Jesus. It's all about a person. You don't hyphenate a person. Jesus is the one who died and rose again to pay the price for our sins. Therefore, all this tangential things, this, this color of our skin, how much melanin we have, or the languages that we speak mean nothing in the kingdom of God. Color, skin, ancestry, it's all secondary. And it has no bearing on your faith in Jesus or your love and allegiance to the church and its members. That's why we're supposed to have peace within our church. No matter what, the person sitting next to you is your brother and sister. Just as much as the people who carry similar DNA to you, they are your brothers and your sisters. And that leads us to our next couple of verses. In verse 13. It says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. It's almost as if God was answering the unasked question here in this scripture. Well, how do I forgive all those people who are horrible to me, especially before I came to Christ? And it's like the Lord is saying in his word, I'm glad you asked. Here's the answer. Central in this thought is very simple. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. He puts the central premise like this. You know, we talk a lot about songs or, or and sing a lot of songs about the cross and nails that held Jesus on the cross, about the passion of his suffering and the humiliation that he experienced as he bled and died for our sins. But you know, 
It wasn't nails that held him on the cross. It wasn't toughness that enabled him to carry that cross to the place of execution. It was love. It was pure love. I mean, think about that for a minute. Do you think nails are going to be able to hold down God? Jesus, at any point, could have caused those nails to vanish. The wounds and pain he felt be instantly healed, and the hillside around him filled with crosses containing all the people who hurt them that day. He could have done that like that. But he didn't. Why? Because he loves you. He wants to forgive you. And he wanted to be the way that you can come to the Father, having your sin debt wiped away by his blood that he shed on that cross, free from your old way of life, so that you can follow him. That's why I need you to see this secret toward forgiving those who hurt you. Forgiveness is dependent on the virtue of love. That word love there in the Greek language that this letter was originally written in is agape. The Greek word agape means a selfless, God kind of love. It means a love feast is a literal translation. It means you may be hungry, but there is a spread the size of Whitehall out there to, for you to feast on. That's what he is describing this kind of love. Is it, it is immeasurable and un, unable to run out. That's the God kind of love. That's the love that held Jesus on the cross. And the kind of love that we truly need to love others. Or need to truly love others. And I can't tell you how many people I meet just in a week that hold on to unforgiveness. I know highly successful people, very educated people, who are so stung by a betrayal in their lives that their countenance, their words, their actions, their mannerisms are just bitter, nasty, and they get worse as time go on. They never forgave, and they never moved on toward healing. They never accepted and gave the love of Christ into their own hearts or to other people. The most toxic thing you and I can hold on to is unforgiveness. You know, fat and cholesterol can damage your heart, but not like unforgiveness. It's a cancer. It immediately begins to metastasize from your heart and spread through your entire being, your body, your soul, and your spirit. It's a trap of Satan to keep you under his control. And if you don't love that, let that agape love of God in, then you'll stay under the control of the realm of darkness. And eventually it will destroy your soul. That's the first thing that will steal your peace. And Paul recognizes it when he continues the teaching about how it's necessary for us to have the peace of God in our hearts. In verse 15 he said, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish 
one another with, in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do so in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In addition to forgiveness, Paul gives us a central idea here. And that idea is that conflicts, war, and hatred were never intended to be part of any of us. It was not part of God's creation. When we fell in the Garden of Eden, when humanity fell, that's when all of that came in. That's why it hurts so much when it happens. Because it runs contrary to the image of God that he has placed within us. And that is why hatred and lack of peace produces fear within us. And fear is a powerful spiritual acid to our soul. It corrodes us at the deepest levels, affecting and infecting every single thing you do in life. And that's why this idea of peace is central to our faith. Why it was seen so much in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was such a part of Jewish culture, of them wanting peace in their lives. It's how they greeted one another. Instead of saying hey or hello like we do, they would say shalom, which is the Jewish word for peace. And why would they do that? Was it just them saying, hey, I hope you have a good day, or hey, I hope your emotions are okay? No, they were actually calling upon one of God's names. Jehovah Shalom is in the Bible, in the book of Judges. It's God's name. The God is peace. By wishing peace upon them, they came into contact. They were essentially saying, may the presence of Adonai their, their, their common name for God. May the presence of Adonai bring his presence and peace upon you. And they weren't just necessarily asking for them not to be afraid. They're calling down the God of the universe so you don't have to be afraid. So if you str struggle with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with this, this sense of never being at peace, listen closely. If you have fear, invite God into it. We think that, that we have to get rid of fear before we come to worship. No. No, that would make Psalm 23 not even make sense. When he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. He acknowledges God even in the midst of his fear. If you have a problem that seems insurmountable, bring God into it. If you have a sin you struggle with, invite God into it. Now I know some people may have a hard stop in your brain when I say invite God into your sin. I'm not saying ask God to come bless it. I'm saying just invite him in. Because guess what? He's already there. Right? He's already there. You're not hiding from him. You don't have a room dark enough to do your sin in that he's not going to be able to see it. Like the psalmist said, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I go to the depths, you're there. If I go to the highest heights, you're there. He's everywhere. Trying to hide from God in the midst of your sin is like waking up in the middle of the night with a crushing pain in your chest 
So you run into a closet, you turn off all the lights and shut off your cell phone and decide to suffer through it. Does that make sense? Or do you think you should invite the doctor in? Same thing with God. When we have one of those sins that we, we struggle with and we constantly fall to, just invite God in. No matter what's happening in your life, then you're going to have peace. And I define peace as a manifest presence of God in your life. Because if God is there, he takes all that other stuff away. That's a start way of your pathway toward peace. We'll end today with a few practical ways that God's manifest presence can help in your life. And they're seen at the end of Colossians 3. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will be discouraged. So God's moving from peace to the outside, to peace on the inside, to peace on that, those things most close to us. And he's showing us now how his presence changed the dynamics of everything in our lives, and especially our families. To break this down, the wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I know many men's ears probably perked up. Maybe people at home, triple underlining this in their Bible to show it to their wives. And I know there's probably wives with their arms crossed <laughs> going, what? Submission? I don't, know. I don't know anything about that. But hang on for a minute. Because wifely submission here is a conditional phrase. I want you to see that. Whenever the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, talks about wise submission, the Holy Spirit was very, 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 very deliberate to put a condition onto it. He says, wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. That's the part that needs to be triple underlined in your Bibles, men. In other words, men show them Jesus through their words and actions. And then 99% of the women I've ever talked to about this, even the most stubborn alpha females out there you ever want to meet, they'd be happy to offer submission if they were doing things like Jesus would do them. And you may ask, what does that look like? I want you to, men, I want you to triple underline the next verse too. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I'm going to add just a few more verses here from Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 25 through 29 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing through the water of the word to present, to her, to, or present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. You know, it's interesting if you go back to the, the uh, and read Ephesians, God gives eight words of instructions for women to submit to their husbands, but then devotes an entire paragraph telling men how to treat their wives and why. I had a funny thought when I was writing this. I said, God was mansplaining to men how to be men. 
He really had to break it down to them. So men, we have eight words of submission for women and 71 words for us. God knew we were kind of slow sometimes. So he had to really, uh, really drive it home to us. He had to show us who has the greater responsibility and the greater accountability toward God when it comes toward a, to a happy marriage. Guys love to say happy wife, happy life. Well, man, it's up to you to make her happy. By the way, it's not just your wife, it's your children. We kind of bought into a lie in the last hundred years or so that it's the woman's job to raise a family. Nope, it also falls on us. It also falls on us. There are things that, and I don't, I don't criticize single moms at all. I understand that, that sin has done a number on, on most marriages nowadays. And I get that sometimes people split up. I'm not, I'm not condemning people because of that. But I'm saying is God's plan was a man or a, a mother and a father together in marriage to raise children. There are things that fathers can teach that women can't, and there are things that mothers can teach that men can't. And having both those people in the home is critical to the raising of children. And that's why that duty falls on men just as much as the women. Finally, as we follow the pathway toward peace in our lives, our marriage, and our families, it also flows down into our jobs. Now, in the language of the Bible, they really didn't talk employer, employee. They said master and slave. So think employee instead of, or employer instead of master and employee instead of slave. In verse 22, it says, Slave, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Let me say that again. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It's for anybody with a bad boss. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, for there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. I've had a lot of struggles transitioning from being a paramedic to a nurse. And just in the way I communicate with people and, uh, and communicate with many of my co-workers. And God convicted me of a few things recently. He said, you know, John, you're, you're there not to be so much the leader, but you're there to be the thermostat. And I said, what do you mean, be the thermostat? He said, I put my people in positions to raise the spiritual temperature in the room. And it's your job to do it. Now, if you choose to, to remain over here with the, the gossip and the drama and the backbiting and all that, you choose to participate in that, you're never going to raise the spiritual climate of that place. I need you to instead be the thermostat that brings positivity into that workplace, that brings the kingdom of God to bear. 
You know, I've always said here that the nation's prosperity is dependent on the church and not the sinful world. Most of our nation's issues are because people have fallen away from the church and those who are left are, are so lukewarm in many of the churches that the God's presence is barely there. And when God's presence leaves, sin and evil run in and flourish. And it's the same in all aspects of our lives. It's the same in our, in our families. It's the same with our friends. And it's the same in our workplace. If we don't bring the Spirit of God in with us, then we don't contribute to the raising of the spiritual temperature there. So God just asked me to ask myself, when I feel like I, to, of getting into the, the discuss, some of the discussions that are happening, he said, ask yourself, am I adding peace by quieting the fear with God's presence? Or am I just contributing to the low spiritual temperature? Close your eyes for a moment. Just ask yourself these questions. In, in your life, whether it be in your family, your workplace, your school, wherever God has you, are you increasing God's peace and presence in that place by what you choose to say, what you choose to do? Are you valuing and embracing the gifts and talents of others, seeing God's hand in their life and, and what they do and their value to him? Instead of competing with each other, we should hold each other up. Are you contributing to the spiritual atmosphere that way? Are you contributing to the spiritual atmosphere through forgiving others when they wrong you, even if they don't deserve it, even if they're so mad at you, they stuck that knife in your back and it really hurt? Do you still forgive them? Do you have fears in your life, anxieties, that you haven't given to God yet? If someone were to look into your home and see how you treat your wife and, and, or husband and children, would they see his presence there? Is your, is your thermostat raising because of your presence? Father God, when it comes to peace, when it comes to, to bringing the light of Jesus, we often look toward everybody else to do it and forget that you have called us into the world for where we are for such a time as this. You have called us to be your ambassadors. You have called us to go over to the spiritual wall of wherever we are and turn up that thermostat to Jesus' level. So, Father, I ask, Lord, that you help us in our daily lives, moment by moment, to always be the people who bring peace to the chaos, who bring love to the hatred, who give a quiet word when there is wrath. Father God, it is so hard to do when we are surrounded with such negativity in this world. That is why we need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is why we need your Holy Spirit to fill us every single day. So help us to remember to do that, Lord, to be people of the Spirit. Because if we are endowed with your power, Holy Spirit, we will be people that can bring others on the pathway of peace with us.